Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Looking again this morning at 1 John and reading from 1 John 5.10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. I've entitled this, How a Word Can Save. The work of Christ, as stated in a way we may not be used to, reorients us to language, belief over and against unbelief, truth over and against a lie. A human word against the word from God. And so the Bible depicts creation as occurring through words, through language. God speaks and the world comes into being. Colossians says that the world is sustained then through his mighty word. The fall of man is depicted as a departure from the word of God and a turn to a different order of language. The knowledge of good and evil. In Babel, you know, a unified religion, a unified culture in rebellion against God is depicted as forming around a unified language. And so God confuses the language. The story of the Old Testament is God's attempt to have his word, his promise, restored in a taking up of Torah. Christ is depicted as the embodied word of God, sent to rescue us from the lie that has us in its grip. And so there is a word that kills, and there is a word that gives life. There is the story of God, and there's the story, the counter story of man, the word of man against the word of God. And so what we do with language is we would climb heavenward. You know, this is, I think, mysticism. I think it's philosophy. Even, you know, the engineers of Babel, the Don Juan, we would sink into language or we would use language to construct a kind of transcendence. And I believe this is then the depiction in Scripture of the word that kills. We are lost. And the way in which we are lost, I think, is the way in which we are oriented to language, to the word, to our own word. You know, the salvation systems of the world, enlightenment, heaven, they all involve, in a sense, a departure, uh, a dissolution of the person. Even, I think this is the, the grand mistake that's made in theology, in the words of the theologians. First order reality, you know, God is depicted as impassable, that is without emotion, apophatic, beyond our capacity to understand, unmoved. And God is then made to sustain a kind of disincarnate symbolic order and the kind of Sisyphean task of ascending beyond on what is below. The choice is thought over being, the symbolic over the real, you know, in scripture I think the law is in some way take it as an end in itself. The question, and I'm, I'm trying to depict language then, the word, 
in such a way that we can understand when we talk about the logos of Christ, Christ is not on a continuum with this word, but intervenes into it. The logos is an intervention into the word and world that we would in some way use as our salvation system. So in Christ as Logos, we trade and, you know, think of what is a word, what is language. It's simply a symbol system. It's empty. And I think the atonement comes to this. That is that outside of Christ, we're structured around an empty word. And we would reify, we would make absolute this, this absence, a kind of fantasy, a fundamental fantasy, in which we would imagine that I am my own essence. And I believe the death of Christ then exposes this unreality. The tomb is exposed as empty with the resurrection. The essence that we imagine is actually an absence. And it's the exposure of this fundamental fantasy that I think maybe we feel fear. You know, this is the primal fear. And so when John says, perfect love casts out fear, I think he's getting at this primal fear that we find resolved in Christ. God as love revealed in Christ means the body is raised, renewed, made available to us. Created reality, I think, is returned to us. The world is open to us. And so the incarnation is the end of the notion that this world is unreal or that the body is simply an orthopedic for the soul. I think this is actually the dissolution of a notion of God as apophatic, immovable, impassable. God incarnate in Christ is not simply a sign, you know, pointing beyond the world, pointing towards some transcendent signified. In this world, John says, I'm reading here from 1 John 4, 15 to 18. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. God lives in them. And they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how, how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So John is pointing believers to an immediate realization of the truth in love. The capacity to love involves two other things. He's going to say we can walk as he walked. We can obey. We can follow Christ. It's belief itself, the mindset of belief. And I think we need to describe this mindset as putting on the mind of Christ. This is part of the love. And this then is an immediate existential proof of Christianity. Where the human word opens a gap, you know, this is the way that Paul describes it, that John describes it. There's a fear, there's alienation. Love does not simply, you know, it doesn't just simply close that gap. But it displaces it, I think, with the word of Christ. I think that's what it means to displace the word of man with the logos of Christ. It's to displace a symbol system with a person. 
It's to displace disconnectedness with connectedness to the world, to neighbor, to God and self. Where the, the distance between the sign, a sign, you know, you see a sign on the highway, if it says eat here, you don't stop at the sign to, and assume you're going to get your dinner. You understand, you're going to go to a restaurant somewhere. Christ is not simply a sign of something else. The word of God is not simply a sign pointing us elsewhere. But the sign and what it signifies come together in Christ. There is no distance. And so that distance, you know, this is what Paul describes. The law of my mind and the law of my heart are separate from one another and are pitted against one another. And there is a disabling of the will. Love is an enabling. It's bringing together flesh and spirit, soul and body, so that human agency is enabled by the love of Christ. We can follow Christ. We can do what he did. And we can experience, I think I'm, I'm saying an odd thing here. I'm saying that belief itself in Christ is a kind of proof. Now that sounds odd, but I think that an experience in we do away without dependence, distance, difference, fear, that there is an immediate realization of the goodness and beauty of God. And this is the undeniable accomplishment of the Christ. And so agape love is an immediate way in which to know God and to experience reconciliation with God and neighbor. And it will be marked then by characteristics of love. It won't be violent. It won't be oppressive. The human word, I think, is always a violent word. It's always my belief, my word, my possession, my country, my identity against yours. Rightly understood then, belief, obedience, are summed up in love, in agape love. And they have, I believe, a universal continuity. That is that the logos of Christ addresses every human culture, every human word, every human predicament, every person. The book of 1 John, we believe, is written to the city of Ephesus. And in Ephesus, some false teachers have arisen saying they have the true word of God. And this true word, this secret knowledge, will give them a special power of a disembodied seeing of God. It's a kind of early proto-Gnostic understanding. And so, like the serpent in Genesis, the promises like you will have a divine status. John is offering them a more mundane proof. Not that they will become masters of the universe, but you will become master of yourself. Obedience has proven to be impossible for people, right? Due to sin. This was the point of the law. Not to offer up, you know, what do we get in the law? Not life and love, but to demonstrate there's kind of an incapacity. And the expectation of obedience is a proof because this incapacity is done away with. This is actually in Moses' prediction when he receives the law. Even as he gave it, he says that you won't keep it and that the law would simply mark Jewish rebellion. The Christian answer to this predicament, it's not to get rid of the law. Our problem is not the law, 
But our problem is our orientation to the law. Our problem is the human orientation to the word. The Gnostic answer, like the Gnostic cults, I think of our day, is to mistake the problem for the answer. This is Scientology, you know, L. Ron Hubbard, that uh, he pictures the, the body as the problem. And L. Ron Hubbard, the last thing he did, they say, he uh, cleared him. He actually died insane. But they say he cleared himself of the body and achieved the eighth dynamic. He achieved final insight. How did he do this? By dying. The Scientologists, I think, are very similar to the Gnostics of John's day. They would take nothing on faith alone. This is the significance of belief. But they would... Literally, you understand if you're in Scientology, you pay for each step upward in the Scientology. This is why at the upper levels you get the super wealthy. You arrive at a certainty, and you arrive, you achieve a secret knowledge. So Tom Cruise, John Travolta are convinced that Scientology is responsible for their stardom. And the ultimate success, you know, this is why the lesser lights are doing the same thing, that they then will achieve enlightenment if they just work. I think this is just the way that human thought, human religion functions. This is Mormonism. You know, if you you work your way up in the echelons of the Mormon religion, it's Islam. You work your way up, eventually you get a harem of women. It's many cults that... I think very similar to early century Gnosticism. John speaks of Christ and those born of God through belief as overcoming the world. What world have they overcome? I think it's this world that I'm describing, this world of the word of man. And the difference from a Gnostic notion of overcoming, I think is a misunderstanding of the human predicament. What is it that is overcome? The world that is overcome by Christ through faith, through belief, is the word and world constituted by human beings. The principalities and powers, the ruling authorities, the government, think in Jesus' day of Herod, Pilate, the religious rulers of his day, along with the prejudices and racism of the day, I believe that's the world Jesus is overcoming. The religions of the prince and the powers that I think he's still overcoming that world for us. Uh, In a very concrete way, he's driving out the prince of this world. The world the Gnostics would overcome, and I think the Gnostics are just representative of what people would overcome, is this world. That is God's good created world that we have to separate out. There's a difference between the world that is in the beginning God created and there is the world of the human culture, human word, human society. And so what is up for debate I think is what is the problem? What is the human predicament? What needs overcoming? What pains you? What is the source of suffering? What is the human disease? There's clearly something wrong. And the false teachers point at the body the law, material reality, creation itself as presenting an obstacle to be overcome. And the way it's overcome is you die. You're disembodied. You depart. 
you leave and you attain an alternative symbolic order. This is Gnostic knowing, secret knowledge. It's a refusal of the realities of the world, including death and depositing then, you know, it posits an alternative reality. So I believe Jesus takes up the cross to overcome death and to open up resurrection life. Demonstrating, you know, what is he? He shows this through, he is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the truth incarnate. That is, the imagery is always that of this created reality, God in flesh. The ultimate reality, God, comes to us. We don't depart to be with God. He overcomes death, disease, lack of health. He is the source of life, the great I am. As 1 John concludes in verse 12, chapter 5, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This life is immediately evident, I believe, in the restored agency of obedience. We can follow him. In belief, we can engage in the reality of this world through this belief. So John's doctrinal test, you know, what he's doing in 1 John, he's trying to uh, sift out false religion from true religion. This false religion, it's kind of a science fiction, it's kind of a mysticism, it's a departure. The true religion is grounded in the historicity of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that belief in Christ is simply a belief in historicity. But neither is it an exclusion of the historical, right? There's an engagement with historical reality. It's not a departure. This experience of knowing God rests on knowledge of the Jesus who came historically. The claim to, you know, this is 1 John, or rather the Gospel, 1.14, that says that they beheld the glory of Christ. Where did they behold the glory? Well, in the events of his ministry, you know, his healing ministry, the things that he said, the blind see, the, the lame walk. What the eyewitnesses beheld, this is the interesting thing, not everybody saw the same thing. People saw the same event and some did not see the glory of God because the events themselves were not understood because of disbelief, unbelief. And so even if you saw Christ and the miracles of Christ, the eyes of belief enable you to understand what is happening, to get at their meaning. John says this throughout the, the gospel. And some of this was, was only available to them in retrospect. They say, oh, this happened. And now we understand what this means. They're going to say this about the death of Christ. They're going to say this about the arrest of Christ. They didn't understand how this was itself a revelation of the glory of God. So Jesus filled out with the understanding that he is the Christ, that he is, they believe this, this is an understanding that simply seeing does not allow. And so John will contrast these two things. You know, we say seeing is believing. John says, no, those are actually two different things. Belief in Jesus, it's not simply an inward intensity of belief. It's not for knowing we don't know in some direct sense, 
but for believing. That's what John says the purpose of his gospel is. Therefore, many other signs, this is the end of the gospel, chapter 20, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, experience, vision, is not the same thing. It speaks of knowing. Belief is the only means of appropriating the word of God. Belief is the only means of appropriating final truth. And this believing is the basis of loving God, loving neighbor, and actually loving self and the world. This believing is to take up this word and live in it and live it out, you know, follow Jesus. So, John's giving us a kind of proof, of social proof of agape love, and it entails both belief and obedience. He juxtaposes two things. I think we would normally not juxtapose. That God is not available to sight, but he's available in love. This love is not obtained through the eyes, but through imitating the divine model. The love and obedience of Christ are inseparable from the love, our love and obedience, to understand, apprehend who God is. And it's only available then, this is the, the picture, this is the strong claim of the New Testament, it's only available through the new birth given by the Son. So the private, secret knowledge of the false teachers is not a knowing that binds together. Think of as you ascend the hierarchy in the various Gnostic cults. You are set above others. It's not like the mutual submission that we talked about this morning. Pursuit of this privatized knowledge is alienating. I believe the pursuit of every human word, every human knowledge as an end in itself is alienating. The very desire associated with knowledge is one that cuts off from life and love. It cuts us off from authentic experience. It must deny John's primary proof, a self-evident universal love channeled through an empowered embodiment obedient human agent involved in the realities of the world. And so John insists that authentic Christianity is self-evident. You have the proof in yourself, he says. Obedience, believing, agape love are a proof. And this is why John can say the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. He's not simply describing experiential proofs which are incommensurate with universal experience. That is that in Christ, this word addresses the universal problem. So take up this word and walk as it displaces the lie that cripples, the word that kills, as this word is the word of life.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.